Welcome to week 15 of Dialogue Gospel Study on Alma 30 and 31 with our guest instructor, Dr. Ignacio Garcia. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and as a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, we'll be conducting today from my home in Provo, Utah. For those of you who don't know, our previous lessons are all available as podcasts at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the journal. Video recordings of these lessons can be found on our YouTube channel, which is conveniently linked on our, on our website. Dr. Garcia's lesson will be added to those likely by the end of the day, thanks to our technical wizard, wizardry. I have a couple of announcements before we get started. With our webinar format, everyone who's joining us on Zoom will be able to post comments and ask questions through the chat function. As always, please be respectful and relevant as you do so, as usual. We anticipate having some discussion as part of today's lesson. I'll be on your screen from time to time. Dialogue Board Chair Michael Austin and fellow board member Christian Kimball may also make appearances as they help out with some technical issues and facilitate discussion. Welcome as well to folks joining in on our live Facebook stream and be aware that there are occasional issues there, which we usually figure out fairly quickly. We are thrilled to have Professor Ignacio Garcia teaching us today. Ignacio is the Lemuel Hardison Red Jr. Professor of Western and Latino History at Brigham Young University. He's the author of seven books dealing with Chicano Latino civil rights and radical politics, several essays on Latino Latter-day Saints, and a memoir, Chicano While Mormon, Activism, War, and Keeping the Faith, which as you can, can perhaps guess by the title, explores the challenges of being an activist and a faithful member of the church. And I'll add that I'm personally grateful for Ignacio's example and mentorship along these lines um, and for his mentorship as a scholar as well. He has won a number of awards and recently ended his term as president of the Mormon History Association. He served twice as a bishop in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. While in Vietnam as head of an army medical dispensary in the Mekong Delta, he served as a district missionary and baptized his only convert in a Vietnamese uh, motel swimming pool. His title for today's lesson is Korhor, Zoramites, Inequality, and Leadership Challenges During Alma's Ministry. We at Dialogue are absolutely committed to providing a space for the expression of diverse perspectives and for some of the faith's most vibrant thinking. We are extremely grateful to Ignacio for his willingness to share his time, thoughts, and talents with us today. But as is true with any Latter-day Saint Sunday School class, the views expressed today will be those uh, of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, BYU, or any other organization. We begin today with music by Juan Pereira singing Grand Eres Tu, which you might recognize and which I can better pronounce as How Great Thou Art. After the music, Dr. Daniel Becerra will offer the opening prayer. Professor Becerra is an assistant professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. He's a scholar of early Christianity and holds secondary specialties in New Testament and in Greco-Roman philosophy. His primary research interests concern moral formation in late antiquity, as well as ethics and spirituality in the Book of Mormon. He's a friend and colleague of, of Ignacio, and he joins us from his home in Spanish Fork, Utah.
Our Heavenly Father, we give thee thanks for this opportunity that we have to gather together today through the internet to um, talk about thy gospel. We thank thee for the Book of Mormon and for the leaders of the church and for the way thou hast led us in our lives. We thank thee for Ignacio and for his preparation. We pray that thy spirit will be with him and with us. Please help us to know how we can bless best apply the teachings of the Book of Mormon to our lives, how we can best discern the needs of others, how we can be motivated to sincerely reach out to those in need. We pray that we will be able to recognize the, the needs within our sphere of influence and have the desire to, to express love to all those around us. And we say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Daniel, for, for that prayer. Thank you so much for participating. And, and for those of you who don't know Daniel well, he is a great blessing to the university. And I know that having been there for a while without uh, too many uh, colleagues of color, it was, it was nice to have Daniel come. And he's already touched my life and the work he's done. What a beautiful hymn. Every time that I feel down, or sometimes when I feel too high up, I like to listen to that hymn. It touches me, softens me, reminds me of the great blessings it is to, to know God, to um, understand the atonement, the plan of salvation. Uh, it just, it's just a wonderful hymn um, that I like to listen to when I walk down the Provo River Trail and uh, amid the trees and the birds and the rays of sunlight that come through the trees. And so I'm so grateful that we were able to use that. Now, as a number of, of by the way, before I, I, I say this, I have been uh, watching these uh, online lessons for, since it started, just about, I've been inspired, I've been instructed, I've been made to think very profoundly about the things that are said. And about three or four weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, I was, as I was listening to one of those, and it was just, uh, just marvelous, I thought to myself, my God, I'm glad I don't do that because how can I even compare to these people who know the, the Book of Mormon so well and, and, and know what each word means and can connect it? And then uh, I was asked to do this, and, and, and of course, I'm very grateful for it. And then Michaeling comes and gives her presentation last week and I just I knew I wanted to run it was such an, a beautiful presentation it was very touching uh, and it, it made me like Chris who often admits to you know shedding a tear once in a while it made me shed a tear and so uh, I, I'm so grateful for that now as a number of, of scholars in the past or, or presenters have done talked about their own views of the Book of Mormon I'm pretty traditional. I believe the Book of Mormon uh, to be uh, an ancient uh, document. Uh, as a historian, uh, I've not, never tried to prove whether it's, it's true or not, whether it's actually uh, ancient scripture or modern uh, inspiration. Whatever it is, I, I, what I try to do as, as a historian as, and as a person of faith is to try to understand uh, and having done collections and having uh, had to work with other people's uh, works and documents, I realized that Mormon had quite a, a chore 
quite an assignment to put piece all of these things together. And so there's complications, there's difficulties, and there's choices that Mormon makes. And I always think about Mormon as a uh, prophet warrior, someone who has fought for his short uh, time in, 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 this, in this earth. And he's also a defeated warrior, uh, someone who looks at his life and it's about to end and everything that he knows and everything that he's been ta taught uh, is coming to an end. And so I think uh, that uh, affects the way he, he describes uh, the Book of Mormon. Uh, sometimes I think he describes and talks too much about war, not enough about peace and, and righteous prosperity, uh, a lot about evildoers, and of course, a lot about the coming redemption, or the second coming. Uh, as a historian, I can understand that. Uh, because as historians, we write according to, to our feelings, our circumstances, what is happening uh, to us. And of course, we don't write history for the past, but we write history for those uh, here. And hopefully that what we write is still meaningful uh, in the future. Um, now, I think the Book of Mormon was translated within the context of 19th century America and Joseph's own personal uh, world and the things that were happening to him and the things that, that people were, uh, were experiencing. I think it's been interpreted ever since through general conference talks, through sacrament meeting talks, uh, through ensign articles, through books, uh, through family home evening lessons in Sunday school, in hallway uh, conversations, and probably on, in one-to-one -one, uh, discussions after reading a chapter or a verse in the Book of Mormon. Its theology has come about uh, through us, through the way we understand and we interpret and how it applies to our lives. And so uh, the Book of Mormon is a complicated document. It's a complicated book written by very complicated people. It is a saga of a family. It is a history of a people. And whichever way we, we, we see it, whether we see it as modern, modern and ancient, I think all of us who have studied it uh, know that it can be and has been inspiring in our lives. And so uh, for me, uh, the Book of Mormon started uh, when I was a recent convert. Uh, and I came into that Spanish-speaking world in which every one of us who were brown uh, were Lamanitas, Lamanites. Now, we've gone uh, very far since then. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a different story. But back then, I was taught that this was the history of my people, my indigenous side of them, my mestizaje. And so I learned to read the, the Book of Mormon in Spanish. And, and that's how I grew in. And, and language has its own culture, its own baggage. And as I recently uh, understood that even better, as I am working on the biography of Eduardo Valderas, who was the first translator for the church, the first official translator. And he also translated uh, uh, scripture and, and other prophetic works and, and ensign articles and, and hymns in Spanish. And he gave meaning to it. And so, that has been part of my sort of uh, preparation in understanding the Book of Mormon. Uh, and in fact, I read uh, these scriptures, these two chapters and the lesson several times in Spanish and only got to it 
almost at the last day to read in English, just to make sure I wasn't going to say anything that isn't consistent with the English version of the Book of Mormon. So uh, that's where I come from. That, that's what uh, informs my view of this document and, and, and its teachings and its interpretations and of course its, its own mythology. Uh, having said all of this, uh, this lesson is presented within the framework of the challenges of leadership in religious spaces. Leadership in that context is often complicated, hard, often accompanied by uncertainty, and usually only reaffirmed or unaffirmed after the fact. That is, we don't know uh, whether what we know, what we interpret, or what we do because of the teachings is correct uh, or not. So keeping this in mind, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about the challenges that Elma uh, confronted in, in dealing with Korihor and the Soramites. And, and, and anyone who's ever taught a class, uh, taught their family, or, or, or had a, a, a leadership position in the church realizes that it's not very easy uh, to provide leadership in that context. That is often complicated and you often go home wondering if you did the right thing and then regretting uh, some things for the rest of your life. And I, and I can, you know, periodically they pop into my mind and I think about it and whether it was embarrassing now or whether it was the wrong message or whether things turned out right or wrong, uh, and usually wrong, uh, those are things that, that you carry throughout your life. And so uh, I know it's easy often uh, to critique uh, the prophets, uh, particularly the ancient prophets, as so many things have changed. Our interpretations of, of things in life are so different. The kind of baggage we, we carry uh, and the one they did can be quite different. And so, but I'm sympathetic uh, uh, to the prophets, to leaders, uh, because in, in my short experience as, as being a leader, uh, as a bishop, as head of a, of, a, of a dispensary in war, as a editor, uh, as a father, as a Sunday school president for many years, uh, I've come to realize that uh, it, it is a complicated uh, chore to be a leader. Now, Korihor was part of a sort of recurring challenge to the teachings of a savior or of a Christ and the atonement as well as, as a role, a challenge to the role of the prophetic in the Book of Mormon. Not only was there no Christ according to Cory Hoare, but there was no one who could know such a thing as coming in the future. Without Christ and the prophets then, the Book of Mormon gospel had no advantages, a little too differentiated from any other religious teachings at the, of the time, particularly the corrupted teachings, or what had become corrupted teachings of the Law of Moses among dissidents. Korihor, of course, was not the first one to teach the gospel of the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, of course, uh, it, it's a title that one gives to those who, who really earn it. Uh, I think like being a son of tradition, being an Antichrist, is very difficult uh, to acquire that, that, that title. Uh, but it's those who teach against uh, the idea of a savior, those who disrupt the plan of salvation, those who knowingly, because in the case of 
Corey Hoare and the others, we know that they knowingly uh, taught against the whole idea of, of a Christ. Um, back in the book of Jacob, we read the first instance of an antichrist in the, car, in the character of Sherem. And if, if we can put up the first slide uh, so we can read uh, there. And Rebecca, would you like to read that for me? Sure. Uh, let's see. And now it came to pass after some years had passed away, there came a man among the people of Nephi whose name was Sherem. And it came to pass that he began to preach among the people and to declare unto them that there should be no Christ. I'm losing it. <laughs> uh, and he preached many things which were flattering unto the people. And this he did that he might overthrow the doctrine of Christ. And he labored diligently that he might lead away the hearts of the people insomuch that he did lead away many hearts. And he, and he knowing that I, Jacob, had faith in Christ who should come, he sought much opportunity that he might come unto me. An interesting point that he would overcome, overthrow the doctrine of Christ. And then Nehor was Alma the Younger's first major antichrist challenger. And he taught in similar fashion. And if we can look at the second slide. Uh, and it came to pass that in the first year of the reign of Alma, in the judgment seat. There was a man brought before him to be judged, a man who was large and was noted for his much strength. And he had gone about among the people, preaching to them that which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church, declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular. And they ought not to labor with their hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. And he also testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day, and they need not fear nor tremble, but that they might lift up their heads and rejoice, for the Lord had created all men and had also redeemed all men. And in the end, all men should have eternal life. And he began to lift up in the pride of his heart and to wear very costly apparel, and yet even, okay, and there's something in there. Um, Anyway, um, so here we are in, in talking about everyone who would be redeemed, then we have no need for a Christ or a savior, right? So that bit was consistently uh, the teachings of Sharon. Um, then of course, we, we have the priest of King Noah of whom Alma's father had been one. And it, they too rejected the teachings of Christ and in fact uh, killed Abinadi in part because he uh, taught about uh, the Son of God, uh, God himself, coming down and, and redeeming uh, all mankind. Um, and of course, uh, apart from the fact that Alma also called, called them out on the debauchery. Uh, but again, the, and, and what's so interesting about the, the priest of Noah, they would become an incredible challenge to the church. It seems that where they spread out, even though some were hunted down, some were killed in battle, their teachings and their influence seems to be uh, what often drove the wars between the Lamanites and the Nephites. And, and so priestcraft, uh, these priests uh, 
again, teaching the book, the, the, the law of Moses, even though they had corrupted the law of Moses, they nonetheless taught it as a defense against the idea of a savior. And, and in a sense, I think that the idea of a savior uh, challenges us as human beings uh, to be truly righteous, not to be ritualistic, not to look at a set of, of commandments or lists and then check them off. But in fact, it, it challenges us to be better within our hearts, uh, to truly be righteous, to be humble, to be compassionate, to love one another, uh, to turn the other cheek. That's what Christ represented. Uh, whereas uh, with all its, its, its value, the law of Moses had certain limitations in that aspect. Uh, and so whether it's Nehor, Sharam, these are individuals who are teaching and in essence pushing against the idea that there needs to be a savior and that there needs to be in essence an atonement. And one of the things to uh, underscore when we look at these men and others, and there are probably many others, and maybe there was even if, if were equal opportunity, there are probably women also teaching uh, these kinds of ideas. Surely we know that so many people caught on to them. Uh, and, uh, but the one thing that comes out of all of them, if we look carefully at the teachings, is how their teachings will lead to inequality. They will lead to classes that will lead to bigotry, whether it's ethnic, racial, or class bigotry. In fact, sin always leads to, uh, uh, to a differentiation among uh, God's children, right? Righteousness does not and should not bring uh, inequality among his people. And as we've seen, when the Nephites were truly righteous, then there was no inequality. It is when they started using their, their beliefs as a way to sort of puff themselves up. That's when we see inequality comes in to Nephite society. Um, now, what, what was it that, what was Korihor's challenge and how was he similar? And how did he differ from Sharan, Nehor, and Noah's priest in terms of his teachings? Uh, if we can look at the, the third slide. Uh, and uh, Chris, would you read that for me, please? Surely. Uh, this is Alma 30, in Alma 30. And this Antichrist, whose name was Korahor, and the law could have no hold upon him, began to preach unto the people that there should be no Christ. And after this manner did he preach, saying, O ye that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope, why do ye yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Why do ye look for a Christ? for no man can know of anything which is to come. Behold, these things which ye call prophecies, which ye say are handed down by holy prophets, behold, they are foolish traditions of your fathers. How do ye know of their surety? Behold, ye cannot know of things which ye do not see. Therefore, ye cannot know that there shall be a Christ. Okay, so, so we know that he agreed uh, with the previous Antichrist that... Um, that there would be no, that there would no be, there would be no Christ. Uh, but I think, in a sense, he went. To, he went even further. If we, we continue to read uh, uh, in chapter thirty, and that at least in explicit terms, uh, he accused. Uh, well, first, before he he first he accuses Alma and his priest of teaching 
they lauded and slayed the Nephites and he and did so for gain. But before that, he also teaches that there is no God. Um, there was not a common denominator. And in this sense, um, I think he adds a, an aspect to the teachings of the Antichrist that is very, uh, very difficult for, uh, um, for Alma and the people of, of the church at the time. Uh, in essence, for those of us who have ever conversed, debated, hopefully not, but conversed with someone who does not believe in deity, who does not believe in a divine being, one will find it's very difficult to have a good conversation because there is no common denominator uh, in those discussions. And so we end, uh, end up talking past each other because there is no fundamental. Now with Zeram and Ehor, as we'll see before, uh, we'll see later, there was a sense that there was a God. There was no Christ, but there was a God. There was a divine. And so, and for those that, that Noah, that Noah's priest taught and, and took away, and when Alma, and if you remember the last few chapters, we've talked a lot about Alma's mission uh, to the dissidents, to those who had been led away. And he was able to come unto them and preach about Christ, preach about that which they had, they had once known and believed, and in doing so, he connected with some of them, not all of them, but, but he was so sure that, that, the, that talking about the word of God would bring people back, not arms, not war, but the word of God, that he went out there, and, and in some ways he was quite optimistic you know, when, he, when he goes to the Zoramite, but, but he believes that the, the word of God, but the word of God often needs a common denominator, and that is to believe at least in a deity. Um, and so, he, um, in, in teaching this way, one can imagine how difficult it was for Alma to respond to this, right? Uh, and and we'll, we'll, we'll see later how, uh, uh, you know, how, how Alma responds. He also differed slightly in explicitly teaching a message of what I call the eat and be merry for tomorrow we should die doctrines. And that all men, and this is very key in terms of the threat he presented not only to the church, but the Nephite society. He said that all men received according to their abilities, that all prospered according to their genius, and all conquered according to their strength. And there was no crime in doing what each man wanted to do. Now think about a society in which all men do according to their abilities. And we know that abilities, mostly in society, are not just about what we know or what we're good with our hands or our minds, but it all has to do with the kind of support mechanisms we get. So those who are privileged to be educated, those who are privileged to see examples of success and strength and intelligence, those who are privileged to go and get a good education or travel the world and get experiences and those of you who have traveled know that if you take time, there's just things that become clearer as you see other lands and talk to other peoples and study other cultures. Um, and that no one ever does things simply because of their genius. As, as uh, Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, and I'm not trying to get political here, but uh, she just to talk about no business ever strives without the roads, without the post office, without delivery systems, without so many elements, you know, without the internet, without television, whatever, 
oftentimes that are uh, made or created uh, through, the, through the efforts of others. And all conquer according to their strength. Imagine a society that doesn't protect the weak and the poor and the elderly and the widows and the disadvantaged. Uh, what, would, what would a society like that be? Um, and then being no crime in whatever each man wanted to do or each man or woman wanted to do. That, that was a, a message that, uh, and if we remember what the Antichrist had done before and the wars and the, and the, the bloodshed and the teachings had done, you can understand why Elma looked at Corihor and must have thought, man, this, this, this fellow brings up so many incredible challenges. And he can be not only detrimental to the church, but he can be quite detrimental to society. Okay? Um, so he confronts these three elements of, of Corihor. Let me just slightly repeat them. Uh, no God of any kind, no deity. Uh, and as I said before, while others had led people away from Christ, they had at least maintained them within the parameters of deity, something that we might be able to discuss, debate, that we normally are taught not to debate in the church, but simply to testify in things. Uh, uh, Corey Hoare allowed no such foundation for that discussion. Uh, I found in my, my own life uh, when, as a bishop uh, uh, that uh, when people do not believe in the divine, and really believe, I mean, we, we often say, oh, I believe in God, or, you know, La Virgen de Guadalupe, or something like that. Uh, but when they don't really believe it, though not explicitly denying the existence of God, I always found myself frustrated, unable to say anything that had traction often forcing me to go into details and evidence, evidences that I knew at the moment simply would lead to none. That is, there was no real common denominator that I could, that I could point to, that I could get them to engage in, in, in a spiritual discussion. Uh, the second point is Corey Horst's teachings about everybody living life according to their own desires. A common claim by those who have lost the faith or find themselves accused by their own thoughts. Now, not everyone that loses the faith is unrighteous. Not everyone that loses the faith is, is, is somehow bad or, or anything like that. No, no. There are many reasons why we often lose our faith or often are challenged in our faith. But for those who, uh, who choose sometimes to go through um, if, if we allow our thoughts as, 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 as we become uh, people of, 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 of faith and, and whose own sins accuse us, often our views become unequal views, right? Because equality in the concept of all are God's children, all of us are created equal, is, should, not always doesn't, and should, we should not blame those for whom this doesn't happen. But for us, it points to a God. It points to a Savior. It points to a gospel, because that is what the gospel 
of Jesus Christ is, right? A gospel of equality. Sometimes uh, when we lose uh, our, our connection to the divine, we tend to be less concerned about those who are in need. Not always, not everyone, but for many of us. Because sometimes, and I see that myself in that, what makes whatever good I have is the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? I wish that I could say that I was one of those people, and there are so many out there, uh, who don't need uh, religion or church or someone to teach them that, that they within themselves have that, that tenderness, that love, that, that charity, which is, the, uh, which is the love of Christ. Uh, but for me, uh, whatever good there is in, in my life has been because of the teachings uh, of Christ, the teachings of, or the doctrine of Christ, right? Um, without that, I believe, and I, and I do believe firmly, without religion, without believing in a deity, and it doesn't have to be our own beliefs, but, but a belief in a deity, uh, has a lot to do with how we look at our human beings. And if we look at some of the great uh, social uh, justice reformers, uh, whether it's Gandhi, whether it's Martin Luther King, whether it's Nelson Mandela, um, whether it's Dolores Huerta, uh, whether it's so many other men and women who have uh, taught about uh, the equality, who have fought for social justice. Most of them have a belief in the divine. They see their work as part of a religious uh, effort. Uh, again, leaves out some people, and probably unfairly, uh, and I don't want uh, this to be seen as a blanket statement. It just means that for many of us, many of you, uh, your, your work uh, to make this a better society is based on your belief in a, in a, in a divine uh, being, a divine family, a divine power. A corridor, of course, does something else that is so detrimental to both the church and to Nephite society. He questions uh, the reasons for the good works. He questions Elmas and, and his uh, priest and his people and, and the people of the church as having done things for their own benefit, for gain. And, and we often hear that uh, of, of people who, who attack us as people of faith. That we do that in some ways we do this for gain. And sometimes we see this in the scholarship. I, I remember a dear friend of mine who wrote a book on Utah, uh, Salt Lake City, uh, Latter-day Saints. And one of his uh, pieces was that, that people, Mexicans, joined the church in Salt Lake City because they were going to get jobs, they were going to get welfare. What's so interesting is that he spends 90% of the book uh, talking about how Mexicans face discrimination in Utah and were poor and were oppressed and minimized. And, and of course, uh, the Utah was full of Mormons back then, and part of the Mormon leaders and part of Mormon churches. And yet, uh, so oftentimes this idea that, that either we join a church for some kind of benefit or that we work the church uh, for some benefit uh, to us is often wrong. Uh, those of us who have been teachers, those of you who went on missions, those of you who have served us 
Relief Society presidents, young women's presidents, particularly those who work with the youth. Uh, the payback has been often spiritual, uh, but rarely is there, at least uh, I waited for a number of years as bishop, waiting for that check to come in from the church and it never came. Uh, so I think for Elma who had given so much and who had just spent, as we, as we have read before in, in the chapters before, so much time preaching, so much time suffering, that for someone to have the gall to accuse him of benefiting from uh, the service that he was in must have been a terrible blow. And leaders, prophets, Relief uh, Society presidents, sometimes it, it does hit us hard that people would assume that somehow we get something of gain in, in the physical and, and temporal sense for the service we do. And so here's Alma confronting this fellow uh, who is saying all of this. And uh, let, me, let us read in Alma chapter uh, 30, uh, verses 32 to 34. And if I can, uh, if I can ask uh, Rebecca, could I ask you to read that uh, for us? Sure. And it came to pass that when he was brought before Alma and the chief judge, uh, he did go on in the same manner as he did in the land of Gideon, yea, he went on to blasphemy. Now Alma said unto him, Thou knowest that we do not glut ourselves upon the labors of this people. For behold, I have labored even from the commencement of the reign of the judges until now with mine own hands for my support, notwithstanding my many travels round about the land to declare the word of God unto my people. And notwithstanding the many labors which I have performed in the church, I have never received so much as even one senine for my labor, neither has any of my brethren, save it were in the judgment seat. And then we have only received only according to law for our time. And now if we do not receive anything for our labors in the church, what doth it profit us to labor in the church, save it were to declare the truth that we may have rejoicings in the joy of our brethren. So that we may have rejoicing in the joy of our brethren. And so again, uh, being accused uh, of, of some sort of gain from the teaching and the service was very galling uh, to, to Alma. Now, I'd like to take a second and ask uh, Chris, Rebecca, if there's any comments or pushback or, or, or questions that anyone might have in, in terms of, of what we've said so far. Uh, undoubtedly, you know, we are a come follow me sort of people now, so... Please let me know if there are thoughts or questions. I think I think the questions that are that I'm seeing uh, have to do with what what is an antichrist and and uh, teasing out the difference between uh, perhaps not believing and preaching against or taking a, a an affirmatively uh, contrary position as as you're talking about. Well, as I said early, you know, uh, being able to be an antichrist is, is extremely difficult. It, it implies that you know what is true, that you understand uh, the doctrine of Christ, that you reject it knowingly and for whatever reason, and that you teach against the plan of salvation and the idea is to destroy, not simply to convince, not simply to, uh, to deny or reject, but to actually 
anxiously or, or, or to engage in the destruction of the doctrine of Christ. And so I, I would uh, venture to say that very few people ever truly become anti-Christ. And, and I'm sure there were people in, in the Book of Mormon times that didn't believe, they might have even told their neighbor or their home teacher or visiting teacher if there was such a thing back then, and said, oh, I don't believe in Christ. Uh, uh, and, and so that, that's, you know, that's, that's a choice, that's a right we have. It is when we set out to destroy, when we set out to reject what we know. And in the case of all three men, we realized that they knew better. And, and so that's, that's how I define Antichrist. I know there are probably more articulate and ways to, to define them, but, but I hope that the sort of response to the idea so that none of us here listening to, uh, I doubt uh, we are Antichrists. So I wonder, um, and also thinking about the meaning of Antichrist, um, folks have been talking about, uh, and, and the agenda, uh, you talk a little bit about uh, some of the outcomes from the teachings of Antichrist as that being uh, inequality, the sin of inequality, this differentiation between people. Um, there's some discussion about what do modern Antichrists look like? Um, who can we identify um, today or in uh, more recent times as Antichrist? Uh, and also, is there something in the, in the Book of Mormon um, view of Antichrist that's unique from, uh, from other Christian traditions? That's a, that's a good question. I wonder if anybody gave a good answer <laughs> in, in the comments. Uh, anybody expressed any particulars? Uh, that is a tough question in terms of, uh, I, I hadn't thought about as much in terms of, uh, in today's times. Uh, uh, what exactly is an, an antichrist? Uh, and I think in, in, in today's world, we, when we are so relative about religion, it really takes someone to just have a, a, a real obsession with, with wanting to preach against antichrist. So I don't know that I can provide a good answer uh, other than, than, you know, contextualize it in, in, the, in, in the old sense, and that is someone who uh, you know, truly knows it. I mean, in the church itself, we, we talk about apostasy uh, as, as something that can be done by those who truly have, have been, uh, who to them has been confirmed the truthfulness of the gospel. That is a, a rejection. And so I guess an, an antichrist in today's world would be someone who so firmly has understood and known and felt and maybe even preached the doctrine of Christ and then rejects it either because uh, something within them uh, changes their mind, uh, oftentimes because of, of, of sin. And I know sin's a complicated word, and, and, uh, and you know, I think there's a debate even among us with what is and, and, and is there anything, any such thing as sin. But I think in terms of, of when that which we come to realize or come to believe or come to feel really causes us to reject what we have been testified of. And if we remember, you know, in terms, at least in, in terms of Latter-day Saint teachings, if you deny the Holy Ghost, that is, and that is a real confirmation. And again, I, I want to stress that uh, most of us do not engage in these kinds of things. Most of us don't confront these things. Uh, 
But uh, for those who would, it is a denial of something very clear and confirming as is the Holy Ghost. So uh, again, terrible answer in a sense, but hoping that people uh, realize that, uh, that we're talking about uh, individuals who would seek to destroy, whether in the old times or the modern times, the whole notion of Christ. Not, not, not to simply say, I don't believe in that, I believe in this. Or I am my own person, I don't believe that anyone helps me or can help me or anyone's going to um, pay for my sins. No, it's something much deeper. And, 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 and I guess the main point is much more sinister because we cannot believe we can lose our belief system uh, and still not be sinister in the way we confront that which, which we once believed. Um, the questions address your um, treatment of an antichrist or denying the Holy Ghost as a um, contrary to divinity, contrary to an an understanding or a testimony or belief uh, in, in suggesting that, uh, asking, I guess, that in the modern world we find sometimes um, us or people around us taking the words of Korahor as, and as, as a, call it a political statement, and saying those who preach that same kind of thing, whether it has to do with Christ or not, are, are acting as an antichrist. Uh, in, in, not as a particular contrary to deity, but as a, uh, as a, as a political position, I suppose one might say. And then, you know, it's an interesting concept, and I think we, we, can, we can sort of place that within certain parameters. Those who would teach against uh, equality, those who would teach about uh, the powerful can, can prey on the weak, those who do not care. You know, again, my thought is that Corihor is not only attacking the church, but the whole notion of Nephi society, which was the idea that it would be more transparent, the idea that there should not be any poor among them, um, uh, the idea that, that we should all labor on behalf of our brothers and sisters, particularly those who were, who were weaker or poorer or whatever the circumstances were, was. And so I think that anybody who teaches against that, anyone who would, uh, who would engage in some, and forgive the, the politics, some sort of vulture capitalism or some, some form of government that is completely uh, unjust, uh, could we in some ways be a, a political, uh, whether it's a political antichrist or someone, but, but there are, those are the, the messages that, that Corey Hoare presented are messages that can be uh, preached even without engaging, as you said, uh, uh, with deity. Uh, so, I, so I think it's, it's a good point. I think, I think in, in, in a sense, uh, we all fall into that anti-category periodically though, so it may not be uh, in any way dealing with, with Christ or deity. So good thoughts, uh, good questions. Um, uh, let me go on for a few more minutes and please uh, uh, bring those questions. I'm, I'm hoping to learn uh, from you all and, and knowing that we have such a diverse uh, knowledge base and also understanding. Uh, 
Um, and, and just let me stress again, we must never forget that sin, sin, however we describe it, is the, is the foundation of inequality, of bigotry, of classism, or any other ism. Korihor was preaching a complete dismantling of the Nephi nation and society. And worst, he offered no alternative plan for a civil or religious society. Uh, you know, uh, in our politics, we, we, we try to keep religion in part out, although we're completely unsuccessful in this nation. Uh, uh, and so maybe we don't want to uh, demonize anyone. But we also have to be very clear that are things that are wrong, they're not justifiable by, by in any way. And uh, oppressing the poor and racial or ethnic or class bigotry is wrong. There is no fundamental uh, goodness in any of those. Right? And I was reading last night, I don't remember what it, what it was, but it was something about uh, there is no such thing as half racism, half bigotry, or soft bigotry, or soft racism. Racism is racism. Bigotry is bigotry. Oppressing the poor is oppressing the poor. Uh, and, and we should never compare to say, well, we oppress them less than they oppress them. Because oppression, I believe, is a sin. And so sin, to me, is the foundation for everything that is wrong in this, in this world, in whichever way we want to define sin. But I think it, it's one of those things, one of those words that whether we are religious or not, we know there's something that is wrong. We call it sin, others may call it simply wrong, and that that wrong leads uh, to all other uh, wrongs. Um, in, in confronting Korhor, Alma uses a very in interesting technique, which I think is, uh, which is often used against uh, religious people. And that is he forces, or that is that we are forced to prove something that is difficult or takes too much detail in discussion. Let's read in Alma, uh, chapter 30, uh, verses 39 to 41. And now Alma said unto them, Will ye deny that there is a God, and also deny the Christ? For behold, I say unto you, I know there is a God, and also that Christ shall come. And know what? And now what evidence have ye that there is no God, or that Christ cometh not? I say unto you that ye have not, save it be your word only. But behold, I have all things as a testimony that these things are true, and ye also have all things as a testimony unto you that they are true, and will ye deny them? Believeth thou that these things are true? I think too often people of faith allow themselves to be questioned and to put in a defensive mode. Not only is that no way to win an argument, it creates doubt in their minds, in people's minds, and weakens their position in front of those that follow them or who share the same thought. When we are asked these questions, which are meant to confuse us, which have no easy answers, we often find ourselves defensive. What does Alma do? He speaks with authority and he forces Korihor to answer some questions. No? 
It's not, no, you're not coming here and asking me the question. I'm going to ask you questions. And I'm going to ask you to prove your point of view. And oftentimes, uh, when people do that, when they ask questions like that, is they've run, run out of uh, uh, their own message. They have nothing to say to you, so they ask you questions. And of course, Corey Horst's questions was, or uh, demand was, give me a sign. Uh, and uh, a sign itself is, is, a, is a weak arguing position. I learned that when I was a debater. And every time I got in trouble, I started asking questions. And it never worked. But that's, you know, the questions are, are of those who have, do not have a strong position to present. Um, when people came to me and asked all these questions about what God did, why God this, why God that, why God, you know, didn't do this, I, I, I realized that I really couldn't answer those kinds of questions, right? Because they were not answerable in the sense that I could provide a remedy at the moment to their questions. And so I asked them questions about what their views were about God, why they thought God acted the way he did. And only in getting them to think that then we had a conversation to do. Um, uh, and of course, I was, as a former debater, uh, strengthening my position, sometimes unfairly, but I'll tell you, when you're on the receiving end and you're supposed to know everything, uh, you, you try to find ways to sort of slip out and, and make things into an, an, an equal plane. Um, but what's so interesting is that once Alma decides to respond to, uh, to Corey Horst's questions, uh, and, and, and let us read uh, chapter 30, verses 44 and 45, and like, if I can ask Chris to read that for me. Uh, and that's something that puzzled me for a long time. Chris? Alma 30, 44. But Alma said unto him, Thou hast had signs enough. Will ye tempt your God? Will ye say, Show unto me a sign, when ye have the testimony of all these thy brethren, and also all the holy prophets? The scriptures are laid before thee, yea, and all things denote there is a God. Yea, even the earth, and all things that are upon the face of it. Yea, and its motion, yea, and also all the planets which move in their regular form, do witness that there is a supreme creator. Okay, when, when I first read that, and I was a, a you know, naive young man, but, but I thought I knew a lot. I thought to myself, come on, Alma, give me a break. You could have done better than that. I mean, you know, here's this, 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 this. You know, you could have just uh, uh, done such a better job. Right? And, and so for a, for a while, I was still concerned because uh, all of us have been sort of been asked for a sign. Someone who either wants to believe or someone who in the process of not wanting to believe. And so I myself had all of these wonderful uh, thoughts that I would say, you know, Alma, you'd ask me, I would, this is what I would tell you to say. But then I came to realize that, and there's something I think that, 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 that we've been taught for so many years, uh, and that is that you don't convince people toward the truth. Um, you convert them to the word. Details and stories may impress, but it, but it is the larger ideas. Those which inspire the soul, 
like God's magnificent creations, his words as written in the scriptures, and the testimony of the faithful, if those don't impress people toward the truth, especially if they've known the truth before, then, then stories and details won't. As someone who talks too much and always tries to give too much answers, and I often find my kids looking at me and thinking, Dad, you could have stopped about 45 minutes ago. I realize that it is very tempting to provide evidence. Uh, but what Alma is doing, he's speaking of the larger things. Uh, he speaks of a, of, of a God, a creator, a divine being who speaks to his children through the written word and through prophets, and then the testimony of the faithful. If those can't touch you, Korihor, you who know the truth, you who have once probably felt this to be true, if I can't convince you with that, then, then nothing's going to convince you on that. Uh, we do not debate the existence of God. We testify of it. Not the kind of intellectual response. Uh, this is not the kind of intellectual response that we often seek or even like as intellectuals. But then the gospel is not about intellectual debates, but it is about spiritual intelligence. And it is a recognition that only God can confirm his own existence and his glory. To us, it's simply the duty to testify, right? God is the one. I mean, if you've been a missionary, they teach you, you don't convert anyone. It's just lay the groundwork. You provide the information, the data, and then you let God uh, confirm whether this is true or not, right? Uh, and that's a tough one because those of us, those of you who, who study the scriptures, who have served, who, who just know so strongly about what you believe, that someone asks you a question and God's saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. You just tell them the, the fundamentals and you let me take care of the rest. And, and, you, and you have all these incredible ideas. In today's world, and, I can, and in some ways it's, it's, it's good, but a lot of people who are struggling with faith say, don't preach to me. They even say, don't testify to me. Um, just listen. And that's good too. Uh, but something within you, whether it's your example, your kindness, uh, your charity, uh, need to testify that you believe in, in, a, in a divine being and that what you believe is true, okay? Complicated, I know, especially in today's world. But I, I don't see any other way that we can convince people uh, of certain things because we don't have the capabilities. We don't have the words. And you know what? If we were to convince them, and I've been good at times at convincing some people, that doesn't ever last. It's only when they become converted to the word of God, to the teachings, to the message, that they then stay and integrate that in, in, in their hearts. Because what we learn here and we decipher here usually is forget is something forgotten. Now, the other thing that, that bothered me about this story, now that I finally learned that it's you know, God who confirms that, was how Korihor is punished, okay? Um, I, I was a, you know, I, and I had a couple of sisters who, didn't like me when I was a bishop. I used to, I used to say, oh, you're too soft, uh, which, was, which was really painful because when I was growing up, 
the great model of a bishop that I had always wanted to be was, was Jose Garcia. He was thunder and brimstone. He was the kind of get up in the pulpit and called you out publicly right there. He would say, I know what you're doing, right? Uh, but in private, and, and for some reason he took me under his wing and in private he would, he would, he would cry uh, over the, the lives of the members in his ward. He, that was just his style, uh, but he was out there every day giving food, counseling people or whatever, but, but he had that strength and you know, and, and I remember the first uh, talk I ever gave at a state conference. I was still young and they asked me to do that. Why, why they ask young people to do this is beyond me, but, but I got up in there. I, I had that, uh, I'd been prepared and, and I had that little arrogance that comes with being young and arrogant in the church. And I got up and I said, I feel like Samuel the Lemonite talking to all the Nephites and all you white people. Um, I don't know how that talk turned out. All I can remember was thinking I was like Samuel the Lemonite. Uh, so I was always struggle when I had to do things that would, in a sense, be called a punishment uh, to someone, even though we don't define them as punishment, but taking someone's uh, uh, temple recommend, asking someone to refrain from doing certain things was always very difficult for me. And I'll tell you what a secret that, that that's probably not a good secret. But I used to think even when I was young that Satan could be brought back into the fold if we could just find the right words. I mean, everyone could be saved if we found right words. Over time, I, I, I learned that one could be loving and sympathetic to the sinner or to, to the person that opposes us. But it's, it was, in some cases, it's only God who can show mercy. Right? Now that, that sounds terrible and that sounds sometimes contradictory, but sometimes our mercy is not good enough. And sometimes our mercy is given at the wrong times. Now I say that understanding that we should be merciful as often as we can be. But when it comes to spiritual matters, sometimes our mercy is not good enough. One reason is because we have no right to give certain kinds of, uh, certain kinds of, of mercies, right? It's hard to read Korhor's plea for mercy, yet Alma lets the decision the Lord makes stand. And let's read on verse 55 in chapter uh, 30, uh, this occurrence. Oops, sorry. Uh, I think I might have put the wrong one. Now, this is, this is my one. So let, let, me, let me look at it in, in my own scripture here. Uh, verse 55, if, if you can look at it in your scriptures. Because uh, I think I put up the, the wrong one and I, I didn't give... Uh, uh, let's see. Said, and this is Corihor. Now when he had said this, he besought that Alma should pray unto God. For he had said, look, I've been, I've been fooled by this angel. And so he told me to say this. And um, I started saying it. I was kind of successful. And all of a sudden, it was pleasing unto me. And I started to believe them. And probably more than believe them, he started to depend on them. 
Now, when he had said this, he besought that Alma should pray unto God that the curse might be taken from him. But Alma said unto him, If this curse should be taken from thee, thou wouldest again lead the hearts of these people, lead away the hearts of these people. Therefore, it shall be unto thee even as the Lord willeth or will. Okay, that's, that's tough for me to listen. Anytime that pleads to me, with me, sometimes I have my, my students come in and say, oh, come on, I, you know, I, I don't deserve a D. Come on, give me this. And, you know, and, you know uh, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm weak at that. Right? I've come to realize that there are certain things that need to be earned and gained. Okay. Um, let's see, I, I, I think I might have, uh, the one that, that uh, Michael, you put up, I think that was the plea that Sharon had. Uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, in in uh, Jacob chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. Uh, no, uh, I think that's the, the next one. 16 through 20. I'm sorry, Michael. Um, hmm. I was sure I was in there. Okay, you passed it. It was Jacob 16, 7, 16 through 20. There it is. Uh, and this is, okay, this is Sharon, when he has been struck um, by the power of God. And he says, And it came to pass that he said unto the people, Gather together on the morn, for I shall die. Wherefore I desire to speak unto the people before I shall die. And it came to pass that on the morrow the multitude were gathered together, and he spake plainly unto them, and denied the things which he had taught them, and confessed the Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost and the ministering of angels. And he spake plainly unto them that he had been deceived by the power of the devil, and he spake of hell and of eternity and of eternal punishment. And he said, I fear lest I have committed the unpardonable sin, for I have lied unto God. For I denied the Christ and said that I believe the scriptures and they truly testify of him. And because I have thus lied unto God, I greatly fear lest my, I'm sure what it is, shall be awful, but I confess. And it came to pass that when he had said these words, he would say no more, he gave up the ghost. How did difference? Corey Hoare admits that he has been told by a, by an angel. But, and, and it's very clear from his words that he accepts that. He's not really deceived in some uh, terrible way, but that he believes these things and he preaches them. Sharam confesses unto Christ uh, and he tells the people, right? Nehor admits that he was wrong and then he's put to death in a horrible way. Korihor, until his dying breath, had the opportunity to see repentance and redemption, the record indicates that he did not. While the idea of punishment to extract confession and repentance seems abhorrent to us, it is the reality that people often re don't repent or seek change until they suffer the consequences of their choices. I remember as bishop often pleading with people to not mistreat their spouses, to change their predatory ways, to forgive others. But still many refused until, as Martin Luther King used to say, life's promissory note came due. 
and it was only when they had uh, been condemned by their own selves or things had gone wrong that they did. Not, not, not all who are unrighteous or evil will pay in this life. We know that. You know, we see it constantly in our own world in, of inequality, of, of racism, of oppression, that some people seem to go gladly, happily, uh, and honorably to their grave. But in the, long, uh, in, in the long run, we all are confronted. I believe that people suffer for their own sins. And I'm here, I'm not talking about the usual sins that many of us commit on ourselves or, or those faults that, that sometimes hurt, but they're not uh, hurting anyone. I'm talking about those who would commit a wrong uh, against others. As an old Protestant refrain says, made famous by Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., it declares that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And that expresses better than anything I could say about the consequences uh, that people confront because of the choices that are wrong, right? We will all suffer. But I think we will all know the difference between we're suffering because the reality of living in this world and the suffering that comes because of the things we choose that are wrong. Choosing right and suffering, uh, in a sense, is a blessing. May even say it's a badge of honor. Choosing wrong and suffering is the consequences of bad choices. Um, one of the most difficult things, and here Elma is not only responding, but he's also uh, defending the faith. And again, another very complicated concept to us in, in modern times. Uh, it is the most difficult elements of leadership, whether it's in the family, as an auxiliary president, as a pre, in a priesthood calling, whatever, to be defender in the faith, of the faith. In fact, defending the faith is in some ways contrary to our most inner desire of brother and sisterhood. We don't want to impose, we do not want to be gatekeepers, and we should not be gatekeepers. But yet, we, we have to justify what we believe, whether it's by words or by actions, okay? Because in doing so, for leaders, and I'm talking with leaders, your main responsibility is to protect the flock. How many times as leaders we do it wrong? I know I did. But often we have no choice but to believe and defend. Elma defended. And after Corihor is gone, they publicize uh, the, uh, what had happened. And, and it probably seems very unseemingly to us that somehow we are, we, uh, that he is publicizing a victory over evil. But too often leaders, uh, have to do things that are very much uh, difficult and unpleasant and oftentimes make us look bad and oftentimes we, we are bad in making that decision, but it is one. I, I remember once a woman coming to my office and saying that she was a long-term, long-time member who had been away and she asked if she could come uh, to the fellowship in our ward. Of course, I said, 
you're welcome to our Ward family. Then she added, I believe in much that the church teaches, but I don't believe in Joseph Smith. Boom. It was a difficult moment for me, knowing the possibilities of conflict, but I still welcomed her and asked her only not to teach that view. Not so much that I fear that she would drive anyone away, but that it might cause members of the ward to react negatively to her. Again, I wanted things to turn out the right way. I know many, including some of my friends who have taught who have been in leadership positions, who have said they would never have allowed someone like that in their ward. Right? Uh, now, she did not last long in our ward, but she honored her promise. And most people never found out her views on the prophet Joseph Smith. But I have often asked myself, what would I have done if she had chosen to teach her views and try to convince others and create division within the ward? As bishop, but I had to respond. Now, luckily, I never had to. And to this day, I'm not sure exactly how I would have responded. But it, it, it brought uh, to mind the responsibility of leadership. And again, let me, let me say, because I know so many of us have confronted um, unjust stewardship. We all have, I have, uh, and, and it, it's a painful thing. And so I choose to believe and trust in leaders, at least to the extent that I can trust them, uh, because I believe uh, that it's good and that it's important, but never allow myself to accept everything simply because it comes from, from their voice. And, and I don't mean to judge or criticize anyone. It's just that, uh, uh, so uh, anyway, uh, any thoughts or questions? I think these are a, a little bit more, and I know we're going uh, far into it, and so I'll try to end uh, quicker, but uh, any comments or thoughts? I, I know these, I'm threading sometimes on some dangerous ground and I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, I want them to understand it in the context that they want to teach it. But any thoughts, uh, Rebecca or Chris? Don't spare me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think we have um, some comments about um, a couple types of ironies or trage tragedies maybe. Um, and you uh, explain one of these in a particular way. Um, but uh, let me just throw these out here. One is that uh, the irony that Korhor believed an angel who came to him and taught him that there is no God. So he had this sign that life is mysterious and full of wonder, but then he chooses another path and, and is competitive and plays this power game with people and treats people not as if they're divine, um, but if they're pawns and kind of this, this game that he's playing. So, so there's that kind of irony, but also the irony folks feel like um, come, that comes out in the treatment of Korihor by followers of Christ. And so I think that's troubling for, for some folks who are reading this and, and looking at this. And um, so, so maybe, Maybe address that. No, it, it's true. And, and uh, you know, again, I, I struggled uh, over the idea of punishment and, and uh, 
you know, and, and so, uh, you know, when I read that, it, it is uh, in part, and, and it's not troubling in terms of making a moral judgment on what, uh, you know, God did or what Alma did, uh, but only in the fact that uh, it is very difficult when we're dealing with those people we are supposed to love, right? And sometimes our own love and mercy uh, seems to have no bounds, right? We love uh, people and, and, and we don't want to see them uh, suffering. But uh, I, was, I was reminded uh, when I was reading about Korhor, about Alma and about the Apostle Paul. What happens to Alma the Younger when he's out there and, and he's specifically looking to destroy the church. At least that's what the, the Book of Mormon says. And he, so he's struck down and mute. And he's, he fights for his life in that moment. I mean, we, we just take, uh, take it for granted that, okay, Alma was supposed to come out of this and he was an ex-prophet and he's been ordained and foreordained and so that's what's going to happen. But if we are to believe in the process, then Alma had a good chance of not coming out of this, right? Paul had a good chance of not coming out of this. Uh, Sharon, Sharon uh, also confronted that, and he seems to have come out out of that, uh, whatever happens in the afterlife. I, I think he uh, comes out better. But Korihor does not. Uh, I, I, I knew a gentleman that the former bishop had, had warned me about an incredibly abusive man, not in the physical sense, but the emotional, psychological sense. I mean, his, his wife would come and sit outside my office and wait two hours after my meetings, and she'd come in, I'd say, why don't you set up an appointment? She said, no, I need your attention now, and I need you not to be waiting to meet with somebody else. And she would go on for two hours, every single Sunday, every single, and the horror stories she told me was just, we, we cried together, we got angry together, whatever. And we tried, and the former bishop had even said, here's, some, here's a ticket to Timbuktu or whatever, and here's money, why don't you just go, just leave. And if you need more money, I'll send you money, just stay away. I mean, that's the kind of person he was. I met with him, I pleaded with him, I spoke to him, I prayed with him, I fasted for him. You know, we did everything we could and he never changed, and eventually he destroys his family, okay? There are some people who simply will not change unless they confront the, the consequences of their choices. And in the case, in, in the case of Korihor, Elma has to make a judgment. Now, whether he makes it right or wrong, Elma has to make that judgment. Do I believe this fellow will change? Well, he's not said anything other than he was, you know, he was, uh, he was lied to by an angel. And of course, an angel indicates that he knows there's divine beings. So this guy isn't as, as he hasn't been as, as, as truthful as, as he should have been. And so Alma, but Alma does say one thing. He says, well, let the Lord's will. Let the Lord, uh, you know, uh, decide. And if the Lord thinks I'm wrong, he'll take care of them. Uh, is that a cop-out? I don't know. We leaders sometimes, or when we've been leaders, we do take cop-outs. We're human. Um, but so 
I don't know that, that there's a better response to the fact that Corey Hoare just seems to have been a person who doesn't, uh, doesn't seem, in, in, in the judgment of Alma, that he would change. And you know, when you don't suffer through it, you know, Alma the younger suffered through a period of time. Paul suffered through a period of time. How many of us who have engaged or have done something that we consider to be wrong have not paid the price, and it's usually not overnight. You don't get the boom, and all of a sudden the next morning you're fine. But that in fact, we suffer uh, a lot, and, 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 and we question ourselves, and we, we engage in this reflection, and we pray, and we cry, and we do all the things, and then maybe then we see the Lord uh, redeem our suffering. Corey Hoard seemed not to present that. And that's about the only thing that I can say that even though it, it troubled me, uh, that's all that I, I could see uh, that simply Corey Hoard was not going to change. Uh, and, and maybe he was getting his opportunity. Um, any other thoughts? I, I think you just addressed this, but I will play it out a little bit anyway, because I think it's a useful observation. Um, we hear you arguing that sometimes the judgment is necessary, that some people don't change, that some people are intentional enough that uh, there has to be some action to defend the faith, defend the people. Uh, but as a, a kind of pushback, a, a number of comments are suggesting um, we don't necessarily know that this is the example. It is the example that causes us to think these questions, but uh, Korhor may well have been lying. Um, Alma may well have made the wrong decision in this case. Those are things we, uh, the pushback is we don't necessarily know that this is a, a, a right decision or that this is actually an example of what you're talking about. And, uh, and I, I think that's a pushback to say, let's not overstate this case as um, proof of concept. Uh, it, it's a good point. Uh, you know, as, as I said earlier, as a historian, I'm only looking at the document as it's been presented. So I, I don't know, maybe Alma, uh, you know, their exchange is different and he decides to write something in his own uh, you know, journal. Uh, that, that places it in the context of where, you know, he's doing God's work and whatever. But, but let me push back to the pushback. Uh, there is evil in the world, okay? There's evil in the world. We see it every day, and I think we've seen it over the last few days, right? Or the last few years in our country, in our divisions, in, our, in the racism, in the violence, uh, uh, I, I heard one, one woman say about the case with uh, George Floyd, well, but he's a good man and, and maybe he just did the wrong thing by putting his, uh, his knee on the neck of that young man. And maybe he just wasn't thinking, maybe something had happened in his life. And, and by the time he realized that he'd already been nine seconds on the throat of George Floyd. I don't know that I could uh, that I personally uh, could justify what the man did. And, and, and I leave it up to God, as Alma did leave it up to God in the, in the story that we get. And that's all we have is the story we get. 
is where he leaves it up to God because maybe God knows something that Elma doesn't know and maybe God knows something about the case with George Floyd that I don't know. But I can't see where that evil can be justified anyway. And I cannot see us forgiving that kind of evil for the sake of someone's, uh, someone else's family, someone who said, well, he has a family too. He has a wife, he has children. He has done some good things in his life. Look, there are times when sin is so clear and so unfixable that it takes a divine being to do it. And so I would push back to say, in your case, what is the unforgivable? What is it that Corihor had to do to be unforgiven, at least here in this life? And that's, that's a tough question, right? But for people of faith, in terms of, of, of leaders of faith, teaching about Christ is the most important thing we have. That is the fundamental cornerstone of how do we believe. If someone goes out to destroy knowingly, and again, Corihor has no excuses. He willfully lies, and in fact, he says, it's carnally pleasing, and I start believing, right? Then, then only God can forgive him. Now, whether that should have been his punishment by Alma or not, you know, that, that's up to quite, that's, that's you know, up for, for discussion or argument. But can we truly believe that there are sins that can simply be looked away? Can we honestly, and every time I hear someone who, who preaches, and I have a dear friend who preaches that there's no sin, and Christ only came to uh, heal our, 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 our pains. And I agree that he came to heal our pains. Uh, but if there's no sin and there's no punishment for the people who do horrendous things, who destroy lives, who destroy children, who destroy uh, men and women, men who create, who destroy whole communities and whole populations because of some bigotry in their own mind. If you can tell me that those people do not deserve uh, the consequences that God has for them, then fine. Then I would agree that we simply have no common denominator because I do believe that people are, can be so repugnant that only God can forgive them and all we can do is just stand back and let his judgment come. Now, again, we don't know. We just take it from what Alma said and what Mormon said Alma said. Maybe Mormon just ran out of plates and decided to cut the story short, and we only got one version of it, you know, so, but, but please understand, I understand the feelings, I, I, I do, I, I, I still struggle over punishment, uh, but Alma had a, a, a people to defend, not just himself, so uh, that's the only response I can give. Uh, any other hey. thoughts or comments? <laughs> Thank you, so, Dr. Garcia and everyone today for helping us to, to think about and to grapple with um, these chapters and with um, and with their application uh, for today. Um, I'm especially grateful for the opportunity to contemplate um, uh, kind of both big 
anti, a big A antichrist and small A antichrist and, and, and what, the, what some of the characteristics of, um, of that look like. Uh, and, um, and to thinking about how our claim to follow Christ um, is manifest in our actions toward other people and in our value of human dignity. Um, and that uh, the results of the teachings of, anti of, of an antichrist uh, lead to division and to, to inequality. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Ignacio, and thank you to everyone. Uh, we will close today with a prayer, which will be offered by Brian Cannon, and hope you will join us next week when we explore Alma 32 through 35 with Professor Mirsa Baradaran. Dr. Cannon is the Neil L. York Professor of History and the current chair of the History Department at BYU. He directed the Re Charles Red Center for Western History at, at BYU for 15 years. He's the former president of the Mormon History Association and the Agricultural History Society and serves on the editorial board of the Utah Historical Quarterly. He and Ignacio have been colleagues and friends at BYU for a long time, one of his favorite books and one that he regularly assigns in his Modern American West uh, history class at BYU is Ignacio's memoir, Chicano While Mormon. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the opportunity we've had to consider the Book of Mormon and specifically the story of Korahor. We're grateful to Ignacio for his careful preparation and study and for the insights that he's shared with us. We're grateful for thy spirit that we've felt as we've discussed the implications of Horahora and Alma's interchange for ourselves and for our lives. We pray that thou wilt help us to better understand ourselves and to better uh, cope with evil tendencies in ourselves and in society at large, and to be responsible disciples of thee and thy son. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.